Last night, I had the privilege of going to Sydney, as uh, Gary mentioned. I only just got back around, uh, what, like 2.30 or something like that. Uh, I got to see uh, the Australian Christian Lobby and the Truth of It conference, and I got to see Martin Niles deliver what I thought to be quite a rousing talk. And it kind of brought to my attention the, I guess, the tension between the church and the state, and how the church interacts with the state, and how the state is this great juggernaut this great authority that has divorced itself from any overarching authority, such as God, which is what our Western nations used to believe in, and now considers itself to be God, considers itself to have absolute authority, that whatever is passed in Parliament is the law of the land and must be obeyed. We come to the book of Peter at the height of his message so far to us. It's this great crescendo as he brings us to this understanding of what the church is, you may remember it from verse 9. He says, this is what the church is. A chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possessions, uh, his own possession. And what are we to do to proclaim the excellencies of him? Not of the state, not of ourselves, not of those we, even we love. We proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Peter displays for us our wonderful status before God, doesn't he? A chosen people, his own people, called by him to be a holy nation. Many of us are still reeling from the last three years. As we come to grapple over that very weird time that we experienced, which was the COVID pandemic, and we kind of come out the other side and we kind of pretended it didn't happen. It's like we woke up from this evil and ugly dream and then we moved on with our lives. And we kind of just slotted back into the way things were as normal and we kind of forgot what actually happened and what we just lived through and the psychological effects that it is having still today on people. How quickly we turned against each other. How quickly we forsook the gathering. How quickly we devalued church and how many seats are still empty in churches around Australia as a result of that great pandemic. We find God's most holy church in all areas around the world, beset at every side by enemies in high places. She is corralled, attacked, harassed, and slandered. Her name is dragged through the dirt by enemies both without and within. And the question from Peter's readers, as we're going to come to really grapple with what Peter has for us today, is what must this holy nation do in the midst of a wicked kingdom? What must God's church do where she finds herself? Is this new kingdom, this new holy nation to take up arms, to overthrow the emperor? Are we supposed to bring the rule of Jesus here on this earth at the end of a sword? Or is this kingdom entirely spiritual and not of this world? and shouldn't have any impact on this world. And as we can see, there are two ditches on both ends. There's a significant shift we're going to find here in the book of Peter from description to application. Peter is going to give the church her marching orders, how she is to interact with the world and how she can conquer this world for the glory and majesty of Christ. But the weapons he gives us are not the ones we naturally think of. The weapons that he hands to us is not a sword, nor a gun, nor a cannon, or a tank. We don't storm the gates. We don't remove dictators. 
The weapon given to us is honour. And you may not have thought of that word first. In fact, I did not think of that word when I came to this passage either. And yet these are the time-tested, victorious weapons of the church across history as we seek to disciple the nations into obedience to Christ. So we've got a lot to unpack, don't we? Well, let's go to Peter, because Peter's going to do a much better job of unpacking it than I could ever do. So I've got three points for us today. Number one, hierarchy is good. Number two, our weapons of warfare. And number three, honour as a potent weapon. See if you can notice these things in the passage. We're going to read from verse 12. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honourable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Be subject, for the Lord's sake, to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor's supreme or to governors, as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honour everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honour the emperor. In verse 13, Peter encourages the church to be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. And this is in reference to magistrates. And I'm going to use this word magistrate all throughout my sermon, so I thought I may as well define that word for you guys before we get into it. And I'm referring to anyone that belongs to the government, that has judicial power, anyone that has the power and authority to arrest, charge and punish you, these are magistrates. And they are ministers of God, according to this passage. And Peter calls us to be in subjection to them. He affirms in his day and age that the Roman officials, the governors, the emperor, they have real authority and they are sent by God for a specific ministry. And to refuse the Roman government would have given the Roman officials no small reason to launch into a full-scale persecution of the church. They would have seen the church as troublemakers, as evildoers, as people who upset the peace. And you have to remember that Christians are seen as a Jewish sect. And if you know anything about history during this time, the Jews were, uh, had a reputation. And their reputation was as being a people that are absolutely ungovernable. They were considered a plague to anyone who was sent to rule over them. They often led violent revolutions against the kings that had come before. They often caused a lot of headaches for the Roman officials. Have you read in the Gospels the way that Pontius Pilate deals with the Jews? You don't see a lot of friendship there. You don't see a lot of uh, camaraderie. You see, when Barabbas comes up, who was Barabbas? An insurrectionist. He led this huge insurrection trying to overthrow Rome in Judea. And here he is getting released while Jesus is being crucified. The Romans disdained any sort of engagement with Jewish leaders. They didn't want to have to deal with them. You read Pontius Pilate, oh man, he did not want to have to deal with them. In fact, he sent Jesus to the cross to kind of shut them up because they were annoying. And so, you may have heard this 
You may imagine an overzealous Jew or Gentile. He's hearing this privileged station he has. You know, a person, a part of God's privileged people, part of God's most holy nation. And they think, yes, this is the time the crucified Messiah has rose again from the dead. He sits at the right hand of God. Now's our time to act. Let's take the nations. And Peter doesn't seem to say that. He says the quite opposite. At the time that Peter's penning this letter, it's the fledgling years of the Emperor Nero. And if you know anything about this man, you know that he is one of the worst tyrants to have ever lived. And you may think that I'm overstating it for a bit of hyperbole, but if you look into him, make sure your kids aren't around. Like him, most of his magistrates, governors and officials judged matters primarily on their own authority. They had no reference to God and they had no regard for him, no reverence towards him and no desire to change anytime soon. Peter gives us this direction, be subject to them for the Lord's sake. That's important. We're not doing it for their sake. We're not subject to them, for them. We don't subject ourselves to their rule for their ego, for their uh, prestige and for their honour. No, we do it because the Lord requires us to. God is the one who sent them. God was the one who established them. And God has a very specific ministry that he has set forth for them to do. And God is sovereign. He's in control of history. Amen. We know that. He has not left us alone in this world to live like beasts but he has instituted governing officials to hold our society back from chaos and destruction. Hierarchy, authority, these things are baked into the system and they can either bring immense peace and prosperity to a society, but when done poorly, it will bring destruction. It will destroy a society. Either way, government is instituted by God and we would do well to respect and honor the hierarchy that God has established. So what is the ministry? What has God given to government? Peter says here, very simply, it is to punish those who do evil and praise those who do good. Paul says the same thing in Romans 13. And he even says that God has given to the magistrate the sword. His job is to go and round up criminals who are disturbing the peace and put them down. His job is to reward those who uh, uplift the public peace, who live in peace with their neighbours. The magistrate is the right person for us to set aside to maintain stability, safety and peace of any functioning society. And anyone who calls for the the abolishment of the government or the abolishment of the police or the destruction of those in power, they are not our friends as Christians. Do not ally yourself with them. We have nothing to do with them. They are enemies of mankind And if we followed them, they would plunge our civilization into utter annihilation. If you read the history books, for instance, the French Revolution, that didn't work out very well. This thing called the Reign of Terror happened after that, where tens of thousands of people were guillotined in the middle of Paris. What about the Russian Revolution? A lot of people are big fans of the Russian Revolution and the Soviet Union. Bizarre, when millions of people died after it took hold. Think about Ukraine. It's called the Holodomor where millions died from famine, a government-instituted famine, mind you. And even these terrible predicaments, we always see a new order forming. There was a new order that came in the French kingdom, I guess. Well, it wasn't a kingdom anymore. It was now a republic. But who showed up on the scene? The Emperor Napoleon, who plunged Europe into one of the bloodiest wars, rivaling, if you... 
you know, if you uh, adjust for the population of Europe at the time, rivaling the same amount of death as the First World War. We see new kings and governors always rise and bring an end to the chaos. We saw Joseph Stalin rise to prominence in the Soviet Union. Job 12, 23 says this. This is God. He makes nations great and he destroys them. He enlarges nations and leads them away. 2 Chronicles 20, verse 6. O Lord, God of our fathers, are you not God in heaven? You rule over the kingdoms of the nations. In your hand are power and might, so that none is able to withstand you. God is sovereign. And anyone who is in authority over a society is not there by accident. It's not like God was like, well, that really got away from me. I didn't know what was going on there. I really wish I could stop that. John Calvin says when God wants to judge a nation, what does he do? He gives them wicked rulers. In fact, that's probably one of the biggest signs to see whether or not your, ki- your kingdom, your society, your nation is under judgment. What are your rulers like? It's a very quick way to know. But we are not that way. The church, we are people of peace. And Peter is not advocating for violent revolution as the kingdom of God. Rather, we are to overthrow this institution with respect and honor as sent by God. And that's my second point, our weapons of warfare. Let's keep reading verse 15. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover up for evil, but living as servants of God. And Peter begins with, this is the will of God. And we should listen up because this is our battle plan. This is God's will for his most holy church and how she ought to behave in this world. And our weapons for war against this ignorance and against this foolishness is our conduct and our way of life. Peter says here that our good will silence them. It will stop their mouths and make them look like the fools that they truly are. I couldn't have hoped for a better illustration recently as I'm writing this sermon, but there is this church in Moscow, Idaho, you might know it, called Christ Church. And there, one of my favorite pastors and theologians, Doug Wilson, pastors this incredibly fruitful church. And this church is not strangers to controversy. Recently, they ended up on national mainline news in the States, uh, part of subjects of this NBC Meet the Press segment. In fact, there are actually whole websites of people that hate this church and are dedicated to slandering this church. You can go look it up if you want. One of the websites is called What Doug Wilson Believes. Have a listen to what she writes here. If you live in Moscow, which is not Moscow, Russia, but Moscow, Idaho, it could be easy to assume that Doug Wilson is the leader of a community of happy, well-dressed families with well-behaved children who make good neighbors, build nice buildings, run a few nice restaurants and have an affinity for pipe smoking. These things are of course all true. But that community is also led by a man with well-documented views that many of us would find outlandish. Views that could be accurately categorized as white nationalist, misogynistic, homophobic, and hate-filled. And what I find fascinating is this is pretty standard slander that comes against the church for just the things that we believe. As much as this woman who writes this website hates Christchurch Moscow, she can't help but acknowledge those wonderful transformed lives 
She has to acknowledge that something special is happening there. That something amazing is going on, even the while she is slandering them as the worst possible kinds of people. So one minute they're the best kinds of people, and the next minute they're the worst kinds of people. But this is what we should expect. This is the kind of offense we should expect to give to the world. The Jews often accuse the church of all sorts of wrongdoing. In Acts 24, we find Paul, he's being wrongly accused by this man named Tertullus of things that were just simply false. Have a listen to what he says about the Apostle Paul. Acts 24, Tertullus accuses Paul. He says, for we have found this man a plague, one who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world and is a ringleader of the sects of the Nazarene. He even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. What's interesting is all of this is false. Paul never did anything like that. The only riot that was started was by them. The only issues that happened was by them. And as they're trying to make a defense for why Paul is the worst possible guy there, they end up making themselves look like fools. And everyone can see that they're fools. And everyone can see that they're liars. And that Paul had acted in good faith and he'd done none of the things they accused him of until you get to Acts 26 after this long, lengthy trial, and here's what they conclude. The Roman officials who have to judge this messed up case, it says, and when they had withdrawn, they said to one another, this man is doing nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. (laughs) Many slanderous accusations, many charges and indictments will come our way as the church, but we must endeavor to make sure that we are not who they say we are. We are upstanding citizens. We show honor and grace to all those around us. And if any offense is given, it is given because we are people of the word. The offense comes from the word of God, not because we're jerks, not because we have irreverent behavior or we're disrespectful to people. Peter says here, we are free people and we have been set free in Christ. We're no longer slaves to the world and we are definitely no longer slaves to dark spiritual forces in high places. And yet it would be foolish to think that now you have been set free and you've been forgiven of your sins, that now is a good time to go around and do as much sinning as possible. Well, you're free from it. You're free from consequences from it. You don't have to deal with uh, the eternal ramifications for sin. And anyone who claims their freedom in Christ is a cover-up for their evil deeds. They're purely mistaken. For our freedom in Christ sets us free to serve God. That's the key thing. We're set free to serve God in spirit and in truth. A bunch of us at church were doing this Bible reading plan called To the Word. How many of you guys are doing it? Just a show of hands. A bunch of you guys would have read Exodus. And you would have read Moses challenging Pharaoh. And what was Moses asking Pharaoh to do? Let my people go. There was something else, wasn't there? What else were they be let go to do worship God right at that point they were restricted from worshiping God as God had required them to they were restricted from doing the things that God called them to do that was good our culture thinks that freedom is doing whatever you want as long as you are not hurting someone now while this definition is widely agreed upon it is simply impossible why who gets to define when someone is being hurt Protect, the protected class define when someone is being hurt and when someone isn't. We're not allowed to offend people, but of course, when Christians are offended, who cares? When someone says something about us that's not very nice, do we get to cry about it? No, we don't get to cry about it. It's only a protected class that gets freedom. Biblical freedom is not that, though. 
Biblical freedom is not being able to do whatever we want. It's being free to do what is good. And that is a key thing we need to remember. We want the freedom to be able to live out the good without the oppression or hindrance of the state. And this is really the most basic tenet of religious freedom. It is the government's role here not to hinder the practice of good, but to praise it and reward it. What happens when the government comes in and says, you, in your attempt to do good, you, in your attempt to follow what God has called you to do, you are not allowed to do it. You can't do that. It is against our laws and it is against our rules. Well, they are failing to live up to the ministry that God has called them to do. They are to praise the good and protect our freedom, but instead they are trying to enslave us. The government often rewards evil and punishes good, don't they? They restrict our religious freedom. They promote those who are harming our society. They silence our voices and they advocate for all sorts of immoral behavior and in some cases murder. It is right to honor the government, but there are times when we are called to disobey them. When the Hebrew midwives in Exodus were called to kill any of the male babies that they delivered, they disobeyed. When King David murdered Uriah and fathered a baby with his wife, it was right for the prophet Nathan to confront him. When Daniel was ordered not to pray to God, he opened his windows and prayed in public and was thrown in the lion's den. When Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego were ordered to worship the statue of Nebuchadnezzar, they refused. When King Herod married his sister, John the Baptist rebuked him for his perversion. When Peter and the apostles were commanded to stop preaching the gospel, they proclaimed it with even greater vigor. And this is the example that we have of those who use their freedom for good, not for evil. And while they may be maligned as evildoers by the state, we see that they are actually servants of God, which is what we all are. At least my third point, honor as a potent weapon. Verse 17, honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. As Christians, we are called here to honor everyone. This means that we give respect to everyone, we honor them, regardless of their status before us. We look them in the eye, we care about their life, we give them an audience. We show them that we see value in them, not necessarily because they are good people or moral, but because they are made in the image of God. We honor everyone, and we need to make sure that that is plain to everyone. And if it is not, and they malign us and mischaracterize us and slander us, we need to know in and of ourselves that it is not true, that our consciences are clean before God. He moves on to say, love the brotherhood. There must be a peculiar love shown to the church of God. Those who belong to Christ, we have a special bond with them that runs deeper than bonds with anyone else in our life, even our families, if they do not know Christ. This kind of love must permeate who we are. It must be evident to all who see us that we are a community that has each other's backs no matter the cost. So if the government does come down hard on us, we don't scatter each man to his, his own family, each man to himself to suffer alone. We rally behind them. We visit them in prison. We raise up money for them. If they're fired, 
We care for their family. We love the brotherhood. But first and foremost, Peter reminds them, fear God. What is more scary than the state? Think about it. What is more terrifying than the wrath of the government coming down upon you? God. Do not fear them who can kill the body and do no more. Fear the one who can destroy both body and soul in hell. God is the ultimate authority. And he's the one who has established all rule and reign across this world. And he is to be feared above all else, obeyed above all else, and revered and honoured above all rule and authority. And this is important because if you miss this point, you're going to miss everything else. You're going to think that what Peter is saying here is that you must be in subject to the government against all other things. That whatever they say, you must do, even if they command you to sin. Even if they command you, you cannot do this thing that God requires of you. And if they say that, what do we say? No. We fear God more than we fear you. We say what Peter and John said to the leaders of the Sanhedrin. Whether it is right to obey God or to obey man, you be the judge. But we cannot help but proclaim the things that we have seen and heard. That is our job. They say to us, you cannot say that portion of the Bible like they do in Victoria. You cannot say these things that are offensive to people of same-sex attraction or who have gender dysphoria. You cannot even pray with them. Even if they asked you, you could end up fined or in jail. You know what we say? No. We cannot do that. We fear God more than we fear you. Brothers and sisters, do you fear God more than you fear the state? And lastly, and most interestingly, he says here, honour the emperor. Now you would think that he's already said that, hasn't he? He said honour everyone, and part of the everyone is the emperor, right? He is a man and he, you know, he's there. But he mentions the emperor in particular. Because the Jews despised the emperor. They tried to trap Jesus with questions about whether it was right to pay taxes to Caesar. Why? Because no matter what Jesus' answer was, he was going to get himself in trouble, wasn't he? If he said, no, do not pay taxes to Caesar, well, he's an insurrectionist. He's against the Jewish state. Or, but if he said, yes, you should pay taxes to Caesar, well, he's a Roman sympathizer. Peter has to specifically remind his audience, honour the emperor. When I was in Bible college, I hung out a lot with young guys, young guys training for the ministry who were my age. And one of the really disappointing things about going to Bible college was learning how many incredibly left-leaning people there were who were going into ministry. And at the time, Tony Abbott was Prime Minister of Australia. And you guys can remember the Abbott days. Things were a little different back then. Uh, one thing that I knew while I was studying at Bible college was that, that Tony Abbott was basically the Antichrist. There was no one more evil than him. There was no one more wicked than him. And everybody was attacking him. And the things they said about him was horrendous. In fact, there were doctored photos of him that were completely inappropriate that was shared amongst these prospective new pastors that are now pastoring around in Baptist churches all across Australia. And these are like of sexual nature, these photos. You think, you're like, that's weird, our future pastor's doing things like that. 
Rather than give the honor due to a man who held that position, they decided to attack him, belittle him, disrespect him, and share illicit photos doctored of him. And whether or not you agree with the politics, that's not what we're talking about here. You still must honor him. Whether you agree with Albanese, you still must honor him. This is not the way we talk about our leaders. We can disagree with them. I'm not saying you can't disagree with them. We can point out wickedness, but we always must remember to assign honor where honor is due, and we always honor our leaders, even if they are the Emperor Nero. It's hard. Can we all confess for a second that that's hard? (laughs) It is. We don't want to respect them, especially when there's nothing respectable about them. Here, Peter says, honour the emperor. Honour the prime minister. Honour the king. Honour the premier. Honour the city council. Cessnock city council, that's hard to do. Some absolutize this message from Peter to the point that it ends up meaning that the government can do anything. And that's just simply not the case. Because think about it. Peter is going to go on to describe the relationship between masters and servants. And he's going to say that servants must be in subjection to their masters. Does that mean that masters, if your boss, can do anything he wants to you? No. His, his rule isn't absolute. He then goes on to say to wives, wives, be submissive to your own husbands. Is he now saying that husbands have complete and utter authority over their wives and their families? No, they do not have absolute authority. They can't do anything they want to do. There is limits placed on every authority. And then some Christians come to this passage and they say, oh, but it's different with the government. Their power is absolute. We basically have to listen to them unless it's like so extreme, it's like Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego and we have to bow down to a statue. One of the ways that the Emperor Nero persecuted the church was they require, he required every single one of his citizens, his subjects, to worship him as a god. And this is how you would do it. You would walk into the temple, the little shrine, there would be Emperor Nero, a little shrine of him. You'd get a little bit of incense, you'd burn it, you'd put it in the incense holder. You'd say, Kaiser Kurios, which means Caesar is Lord. And a Roman official standing nearby would witness it. He would sign you a document called a labellum and he would distribute it to you. And guess what? You can now trade in the marketplace. You can now participate in the economy. If you had no labellum, you didn't have this document, you couldn't trade anywhere. You were cut out of the economy. You couldn't buy your food. You couldn't pay your taxes. You would lose your house. You'd lose all range of different things. And you know what was a bigger kick in the teeth? Jews, ethnic Jews, did not have to do this. But if you were a Gentile convert to Christianity, guess what? You didn't get the same privileges. You had to do this task. You had to worship the emperor as a god. Do you know what the church did? They said no. Caesar does not have authority over the church. And if that is true, then neither does our government. We honor them, for sure. We obey them in as far as we can. But if it contradicts a higher law, God's law, then we are duty-bound to disobey. Martin Niles was asked this question in the Q&A last night, and he said, obey God and obey government. And when you, can't do, when you can't do both, obey God. I wholeheartedly agree with that. 
The most basic limits of power must be our love and commitment to God and his law. If the government or your boss or your father or your husband requires you to transgress God's law or to sin, what do you do? You practice civil disobedience no matter the cost because your allegiance is to God first. If the government or your boss or your father or your husband requires you to leave God's commands unpracticed or to refrain from showing love, we practice civil disobedience no matter the cost. Our allegiance is to God first. If the government restricts us from worshipping God as he requires us to, we disobey. If they require us to burn incense to Caesar as God, we disobey. If they require us to give up our children to him, we disobey. And more controversially, if they require us to not gather as the church, it is the elders' choice of any congregation whether or not they obey. But we do so with wisdom. Jesus says, if you're persecuted from one city, what do you do? You flee to the next. If you're outlawed, you operate in the shadows. If you're shut out of the economy, you start your own economy. That's how the Christians survived. If we can't buy our food in the marketplace, well, what do we do? We grow our own food and we do our own trading. If we are demonized, Peter says, we silence them by our good deeds, either in this life or on the day of visitation. If they round us up and try to put us to death, well, we confess Christ until the end, because we know that he will vindicate us and avenge us. And there is no kingdom out there that has not been destroyed, and do not think that the great juggernaut of the Australian government will not get taken down if they decide to go after the church. And while the government may call us troublemakers, we must ensure that we are their best citizens. There is no one who are better citizens to the government than us. We've got to make sure that's us. While the government may call us evil, we are those who love the public good and we love the stability of our society and we will fight to defend it. While the government may call us dishonorable, we are those who honor them the most in truth, not in pretense. Our good deeds will silence them, even if they refuse to acknowledge them and persist in their ignorance and foolishness. And so we as Christians must be shrewd. We must live honoring the political system we find ourselves in, behaving lawfully within the system, even when the governing authorities pervert them. We honor their position, we honor their authority, even when the men wielding it are dishonorable and sometimes an enemy to society. And so petition the government. Use whatever means to advocate for righteousness within the society that is given to you lawfully. Take up political authority if possible and wield it righteously, but always honor those in power, even if their conduct is dishonorable and unworthy. And remember that God is the only authority to whom you owe every allegiance. Let's pray. Father, we must confess sometimes how much fear we have over the public opinion over the sword that the state uh, wields. And Father, how often we fear their judgment, we fear their fines, we fear their taxes, we fear the spotlight, and we fear their soldiers. But Father, we know that we are more than them. And that in you, Lord, you are the King of Kings. You rule the nations with justice. 
that you are absolute, you are sovereign, you are in control, and that there is nothing that happens here on earth that you are not able to destroy and to punish and to judge. Lord, when we suffer for doing good, we pray that you would vindicate us. Lord, when we are cowards and are afraid, would you strengthen us? Lord, when we are unsure, I pray you would give us wisdom. But most importantly, Lord, I pray that you would help us and equip us to honour everyone. But most importantly, Lord, would we have each other's back? Would we love the brotherhood? Would we stand shoulder to shoulder? Would we face whatever this world throws at us with courage and with love and fidelity to one another? But most importantly, Lord, would we fear you, knowing that the government can do nothing to us apart from your will, and that, Lord, you have the ultimate authority over our souls. And we praise you, Lord, for the fact that you sent your son, Jesus, that he rules and reigns at the right hand of you, that in him we have freedom, that in him we have redemption, that in him we need not be afraid of your judgment because we have been washed clean and redeemed. And, Lord, we face no condemnation from you. Lord, we love you in spirit and in truth. We praise you, Lord, for your holy and most wonderful word. Would we rejoice knowing that we have the truth? And it, Lord, if we are called to disobedience, would you give us strength? I pray for our leaders, Lord. I pray you would give them repentance. I pray that our leaders would, uh, would rule and govern our nation with equity, with justice and with righteousness. And Lord, would the standard be your standard and not our fallen, fallible standard? I pray for these people, Lord. I pray that your spirit would work in their hearts. I pray for many who might have many questions, Lord. I pray that they would find answers. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.